0: Hi, welcome to Sister Untold. We're sisters and hosts, Marva and Sabrina. And in this podcast, we look at history through the eyes of sisterhood. So, Sabrina. All right. Hello. Hello. How are you?
1: I am tired and wired. Ooh. I just drank coffee and it's like 6.45 p.m. But it's too late to be drinking coffee. I was just, yeah, I was like, I can't survive this podcast if I don't, because I couldn't talk. Earlier, I was like trying to talk and I just, the words didn't come out. So I can't believe that doing this
0: podcast isn't exciting enough for you to just be running off of pure fumes.
1: (laughs) I am running off of fumes. They're just now caffeinated. (laughs) How are you? You probably need some coffee. It's like after it's almost midnight yeah
0: well i'm like it's not my episode so finally i get so done. you're just gonna oh, fall asleep
1: while i talk i'm gonna Basically. do that uh-huh yeah
0: uh-huh yeah like I mean, i'm i'm, like, I'm talking oh, to and people and then they who died a like, tragic death you're like <laughs> fabulous that's so nice that's, <laughs> that's pretty much just how all my interactions are nowadays when everybody's wearing a mask and i can't understand what they're saying it's like uh-huh, oh my goodness
1: yeah yeah <laughs> i just did that anyway <laughs> okay so well i think you said you were excited for today's episode i'm super excited for today's episode so i hope you can find it in you to stay awake yeah um uh-huh.
0: in other news
1: i have a quick weather report about california or homeland what? they have fire tornadoes
0: Ew. what does that even mean
1: it's like when fire is like a tornado. <laughs> Fire-nadoes. That's what they call them. Really scary times. But um, why though? I don't know. There was like hail and then like a fire and then like a bunch of weird things that happened all in one day. And I guess they made a fire-nado. Oh my gosh. That actually sounds like the weather here it has been out of control. It's because the world is ending. <sighs> Just kidding. Hopefully. <laughs> I like that you took it seriously. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, I didn't even know. Is that on the news? That's what's happening. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Okay, well, hopefully not ending because we just started this podcast, so.
1: Yeah, well, I guess we'll go out with a bang. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go out with
0: Marjorie Kemp. Yeah. And Julian of Norwich. Yeah.
1: I wish we had them around right now. Didn't be like talking to god and tell us what's going on and like how to stop the firenados um <laughs> maybe they would <laughs> anyways no one knows what we're talking about so we need to talk about it
0: yeah that was me trying to like transition into it and oh then leave that to me Marva. i'm the transition
1: queen thank you very much okay just kidding and you can do whatever you want No.
0: okay <laughs> so the time for the transition is gone <laughs> and
1: gone and we need to make it happen <laughs> so hello listeners so happy you guys are here today we'll be talking about two of my all-time favorite women whom marva just introduced a little minute ago Mm -hmm. um julianne of norwich and marjorie kemp so i love these women and i've loved them ever since i first learned about them my freshman year of college which is scary to think that was like five years ago because i'm super old it's even scarier for me to think that, that was five <laughs> years ago. Goodness yeah. Gracious. So both of these women were considered mystics, and they led equally fascinating but radically different lives. And before we get into their history, I want to give a brief introduction to mysticism.
0: Yes. Okay, perfect.
1: That was going to be my next question. <laughs> Great. I'm trying to anticipate everyone's needs. So for those of you who don't know what mysticism is, like Marva, and honestly, me, before I did this episode, I didn't know this was the definition of a mystic. I thought I just, I guess I just made it up. Um, But there are two definitions in the dictionary. One, the first one is the belief that union with or absorption into the deity or the absolute or the spiritual apprehension of knowledge, inaccessible to the intellect, may be attained through contemplation and self-surrender. That's definition number one. Definition number two, a belief characterized by self-delusion or dreamy confusion of thought, especially when based on the assumption of occult qualities or mysterious agencies. And the reason I I like (laughs) high
0: key identify with
1: definition number two. Well, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I was going to say, um, julian of norwich kind of fits the first definition whereas marjorie fits the second and i like marjorie a lot because she's just unhinged and <laughs> is just like you know it's kind of scary but it's fun <laughs> so scary but fun yeah um more simply put mysticism is quote the experience of the direct and transformative presence of god and that's kind of the definition of it i had been operating with before um mm-hmm. and in this sense every author in the bible was a mystic also the babylons in the philippines who we discussed a few weeks ago were also mystics by this definition mm-hmm. and mysticism has existed across cultures for most of human history but i'm going to be talking about christian mysticism because otherwise it would just be way too much and irrelevant okay. <laughs> and it would take like seven hours <laughs> yes and we are trying to cut down on our episodes yes So according to Bernard McGinn, who wrote an anthology called The Essential Writings of Christian Mysticism, there are three stages of Christian mysticism. The first is the monastic stage of the church fathers of the early Middle Ages, then a period he calls new mysticism that went from 1200 into the 17th century, and then a time of crisis of mysticism which meant, went from the mid-17th century to at least the 20th century, which is when he was writing. And oh. yeah, we'll be talking about, we'll be focusing on the period of new mysticism because mysticism it really started flourishing in Europe in the late 13th century and then continued into the 1600s. And there are a few really interesting theological cons <laughs> There are a few... <laughs> There are a few really interesting theological concepts in the 11th and 12th centuries, which is a bit before, that's in the, the monastic stage, that I think contributed to the rise of new mysticism. So in the late 11th century, the perception of Christ changed from being an impassive king to someone who suffered immensely on the cross. And at the same time, the concept of atonement, which is like a major thing in Christianity, shifted from being about god and the devil debating who had control over mankind to an issue of mankind needing to pay a debt to god and so that's the kind of atonement we're used to hearing about but mm-hmm. it was like a radical change um and it was literally just this one guy in like the 1200s wrote a book and then everything changed um, People could they even read back then well the people who run the church and <laughs> read <laughs> and they read his book and they were like "It sounds legit let's run with it
0: um Um, but so before the
1: atonement it was like well atonement the same concept not the same concept the same word existed but it Mm -hmm. meant being about god and the devil like fighting for power over mankind
0: but so mankind was kind of like just like a pawn and like didn't have any responsibility
1: versus later okay yeah um and then additionally, in this time, Christ started to be viewed as someone who was in the here and now, rather than someone who was just simply in the past. And so these these theological shifts greatly impacted art and literature of the time, and in turn led to spiritual experiences being something that could be seen rather than simply thought, because people were actually seeing images and reading about Christ. Um, and what I think particularly contributed to the end of this period of new mysticism, the rise and the end of it, was at the beginning, there was this trend towards depicting Christ visually and through writing. And in the 1600s, it became like bad to show visual descript- depictions of Christ. And so mm-hmm. that once again made spirituality a less visual experience. Um, I'm I'm saying that no one really said that, that I know of, (laughs) but I think that makes sense that those two go hand in hand, that if you're seeing pictures of Jesus, it makes more sense that you can have visions of Jesus.
0: Mm, And if there's no
1: pictures of Jesus, how are you going to have a vision of something you've never, you never see, or you Mm -hmm. think is bad to see. That is fair. I like your, (laughs) what is it? A hypothesis. Thank you. Um, So there were also, in addition to this like theological kind of, transition there's also a lot of political and social reasons for new mysticism the rise of new mysticism and now we're getting into the 14th century so and this is something you know probably more about than me marva but in 1309 the papacy moved from moved to avignon france for 70 years and underwent a cultural shift from being more italian to more french and Mm -hmm. from that time until 1417 There were a bunch of popes and anti popes, which you Uh, explained. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You explained in our first Medieval Queens episode. So you guys can listen to that if you want more information on that. (laughs) Um, And these frequent changes led to a lot of chaos and uncertainty in the church, obviously, because, like, there's so many changes in leadership and, like, Mm -hmm. conflict. Meanwhile, outside of the church, we have the Hundred Years' War going on, and the Great European Famine from thirteen fifteen to thirteen twenty two, and the Black Death, which had a peak in thirteen forty seven. So finally, there's lots of we drama. we get to the Black Death. Hmm. As in finally, we get to the Black I know, Death. Yeah. <laughs> We've been trying to talk about it in like every episode. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, in my mind, the entire thousand year period of the Middle Ages is just the Black Death. <laughs> like I didn't realize. <laughs> um. Yeah. But yeah, so, and members of the clergy were disproportionately affected by the Black Death because they had to care for the sick. So obviously they're being exposed mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's not like now, we didn't have face masks and little face shields and stuff. So you just had like an orange with cloves in it to protect you and didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> um, didn't really work or it didn't work at it didn't all? didn't work. Um, so people, reasonably so, during this tumultuous time in our history, felt that God had turned his back on mankind, and many of the religious writings from the time were cynical. The response to all of this fear and uncertainty and basically spiritual abandonment issues was mysticism, because that's a more positive, mysticism is like really positive, good vibes. It's like, oh my gosh, Jesus, my friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite literally. Um, so I want to particularly, now that we've kind of seen why mysticism came to exist, I want to particularly talk about female mysticism. Because I think it's really interesting that now, if you go and Google Christian mysticism, the first thing mm-hmm. to come up is a woman. And mm-hmm. I think when most people think of Christian mystics, they probably actually think of women like Julianne of Norwich or her more famous contemporary Joan of Arc. Uh, And yeah, yeah. I read a like biography of Joan of Arc freshman year of high school. And that made me so aggressively religious for the next four years. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Truly like all of my journals were just like wanting to be like Joan of Arc.
0: (laughs) Just wanting to have visions.
1: I still want to have visions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but anyways. Anyway, (laughs) until then, until I leave our podcast to become a mystic.
0: Um
1: I'll explain more about female mystics, like myself. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um so even though there's um a lot of female mystics and we kind of like recognize mysticism as like a almost female art now, a lot of scholarship art out there talks about how mysticism limited women's power. So hmm. Nancy Cacciola, who wrote Discerning Spirits, Divine and Demonic Possessions in the Middle Ages. She's like a modern writer. Mm-hmm. She argues that the criteria the church developed for authentic mystical experiences curtailed the power of women in the church. They, there were medieval theories of female physiology. This is so classic. That deemed women more vulnerable to devil possession than men i'm just like and, and of what course you was would say that like
0: <laughs> but what was the science behind that
1: marva you think they had science they just said that but people I mean, also thought women's was, brains were incapable of
0: learning things but i mean like what was like they must have even if it wasn't a good reason like had some kind of reason. i have
1: no idea we can look it up hmm it's just the, fee- I don't know, honestly. <laughs> um, and so additionally, there was a strong need to limit the number of people who were considered mystics because ever since the early days of Christianity, there have been struggles for authority as evidenced by our Pope and a Pope, Pope and a Pope drama. <laughs> and with all the chaos of the 14th century, those struggles just only increased that like need for authority so it was really critical that those who claim to be able to hear and understand God would be contained within the structures of the church, since the power of the church would be severely threatened if it just seemed like anyone off the street could talk to God. It's like, why do we have a yeah. pope who we, like give all of her money to if Susie down the block is like talking to Jesus every day at lunch? Like, which you
0: know, wasn't that though? Like, literally, basically, Genevieve like she was just like some girl mm-hmm. from like this random town who was like, listen, guys,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's wild. she got burned at the sink. I know, I know, man. So, on the other hand, um, the changes in perceptions of Christ we mentioned earlier um, actually seems to have invited more women to the table. Since Christ was now viewed as someone who suffered immensely and whom people could have a personal relationship with in the present moment, not just like a past dead God kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This type of spirituality encouraged a really emotional response to Christ's suffering. And in the Norton anthology of medieval English literature, they say that, quote, female readers in particular who had been excluded from the Latin-based textual traditions of theology discovered fertile ground in this tradition of so-called affective or emotional piety. Through such emotive imagining, one gained an apparently unmediated and potentially authoritative relation with Christ. So it was actually, like, a great move to make Christ more, like, you know, like, someone you have to sympathize with, empathize Mm -hmm. with, you know. Um, Yeah.
0: And I feel like women, this might sound sexist, but, like, you know, are, like, great with, like, being, like, knowing how to suffer.
1: (laughs) It's true. It's not even sexist. It's true. Yeah. Um, And another interesting theory, which I – I don't know if I agree with it, but I think it's interesting for why mystical experiences seemed more available to women is that it reinforced the stereotypes of women as the spiritual nurturers of humanity while keeping both women and spirituality firmly domesticated. Because these experiences of mystics were private and subjective, not like the public and supposedly objective things priests would declare. So. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting counter argument to the first things we're talking about, about like women being excluded. This actually like Mm -hmm. encourages it. So now that we have a slightly better picture of the spiritual and political landscape during the new mysticism period, let's get into our history lesson. Unless you have any follow up questions other than the physiology of women in medieval times which I know nothing about.
0: Um, I mean I assume that the physiology of women in mean, medieval times is quite similar <laughs>
1: to the physiology
0: of women today yes um, yes,
1: but whatever made it more demonic I don't know
0: I mean it might be the same like women still might be more likely to be possessed by demons um, I just think
1: that's something you would say you know like at any <laughs> given point in time not you I mean like one like society mm-hmm. to control women to be like oh like she's hysteric or like oh she's a witch or oh she's possessed by a demon like it's just her disposition as a woman like oh my gosh mm-hmm. but anyways that is, i'm gonna use that from now on when you're acting crazy
0: no not when i'm acting crazy i would never be possessed by a demon <laughs> um but you know when like other people are acting crazy i'll be like oh she's totally possessed
1: oh my gosh <laughs> let's make it a thing okay (laughs) okay hashtag (laughs) hashtag she's totally possessed um okay so first woman we'll talk about today is julian of norwich she was born circa 1342 and it's unclear whether her actual name was julian or if she adopted it when she became the anchoress of the church of saint julian but either way she was called julian in her own lifetime as well as Lady Julian, Mother Julian, Juliana, and as our other sister will call her, Dame Julian. But Mm -hmm. we'll just call her Julian.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) So she lived most of her life in Norwich, England. And even though she wrote two books about herself, we don't really know much about her early life. Grace Jansen, who wrote Julian of Norwich, mystic and theologian, says that Julian is one of the figures in history whom we feel... We can come to know very well and yet simultaneously remains an enigma. And I think that's a really accurate summary because we know so much about how she saw the world and what she thought and those kind of things, but don't really know any of the superficial things about her life.
0: You know, I actually have gotten that same feedback. <laughs> have you? Have you. <laughs> I have. <laughs> I've been told that I say a lot, but I don't really say anything. Oh, so that then people don't actually know anything about me.
1: Okay, yeah, I do know what you mean. I do that a lot as well. I just like, because I like to just like ask people a lot of questions. And then when they ask a question about me, I like deflect it back to a question about them. Because mm-hmm. I want to be an enigma. I want to be like, I know everything about you. I know your stepbrother's mother's favorite color but you don't even know my middle name like it's like a power thing (laughs) Uh, anyways um (laughs) what we do know about julian is she was definitely exposed to the hardships we talked about earlier since norwich suffered the effects of the black death in 19 (laughs) (laughs) she lived a long life guy.
0: the Black Death in Night. <laughs> um, in
1: 1348 to 1350. And mm-hmm. the city she was in um, connected to the River Wensum. So Norwich was an important port city and considered the gateway to England, connected by roads and waterways to London, York, Lincoln, and other cities. Religious orders recognize the strategic location of Norwich and many developed houses in the city. It's worth noting that one of these orders was the Bejuin. I don't know how to say that, but it sounds nice when I say it like that. So I'll Bejouin. say it like that. Bejuin. And-, <laughs> and Norwich was the only English city to have this order, which was an informal sisterhood committed to caring for the sick and poor. The That's Bejouin. Super- yeah, they're super sweet. I love them. Hashtag not possessed. <laughs> the Bejbeen were therefore loved by the lower class, but a threat to the established church because the church's wealth was constantly under scrutiny, which I know from the cartoon Robin Hood with the fox, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. I've <laughs> yes. never seen them before. Yeah, you have, Marva. No, I haven't. Oh, my gosh.
1: I don't want to lie. I don't want you to lie. <laughs> I'm
0: not lying unless we watched it at, like, wednesday morning
1: church one time i haven't <laughs> seen it i don't think our wednesday morning ch- church would show us about the corruption of the church um but the Benjamin were accused of heresy and persecuted throughout the 14th century because who likes nice women you know um, nobody nobody i think it's Hashtag important she's
0: so possessed <laughs>
1: I think that is important to mention this because it shows that Julian had female religious leaders look up to growing up and her town was really unique in having this type of religious leadership.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And we truly do not know anything about Julian's family, but people have speculated that they were involved in the wool or cloth trade because of her keen awareness of colors and textures of cloth later in life that she shows in her writing. I think that's a bit of a stretch. Like, maybe she just like fashion, but.
0: Okay, yeah. That's what I was going to say, but then I was like, don't be dumb.
1: But... <laughs> um, yeah. And another fun fact is that when she was younger, she asked for three things from God, like, in her life. The first was recollection of the passion. And that's, like, you know, like, Jesus dying and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the second was bodily sickness weird thing to ask for but I also prayed for to be sick one time in fourth grade and then I got sick and I never prayed to be sick again because I just didn't want to go to school and then I got sick and then I was like oh my gosh I prayed for this
0: (laughs) (laughs) all you need to do is develop some anxiety that's how I was sick all the time just because I was so anxious
1: (laughs) I've done that as an adult but as a kid I don't think I had the. I don't know this is dark (laughs) (laughs) um yeah anyway for another podcast anyone wanted to come on to your mentally disturbed um the third was to have of god's gifts three wounds so i guess yeah she is a little bit like she's a little bit dark yeah um but the main defining event of julian's life happened precisely at the age of 30 and a half in 1373, okay. which is just funny. That's like a thing you do when you're seven, but she wrote it down. She was like, I was 30 and a half years old in 1373. Like exactly 30 and a half. Yeah. That's what she said. Hmm. Yeah. So Julianne was living her best life. She was gravely ill on her deathbed, just okay. like she wants it. Yeah. And on May 8th, as she lay dying, she had a series of 16 religious visions, which she calls showings. After this, she recovered quite quickly from her illness and wrote two books about her showings, one short text that narrates each vision, including the teachings she received in them and her responses to them, and one long text that includes mostly the same things as the short text, but additionally has commentary and theological reflection. The long text is her more famous one, known as Revelations of Divine Love, and it was written more than 20 years after the visions were received.
0: So when she Whereas, was like
1: 50. Yeah. Um, she lived a long time. Hmm. Whereas she wrote the short text immediately after the visions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Her manuscripts were carefully preserved by the Bridgetine and Benedictine nuns. And all of the scribes of her manuscripts were women except for one person. So that's pretty awesome. Women supporting women. Girl boss. Love to see it. Girl boss. Literally, yeah. She, like, starts a little, like, printing press company. No, she didn't. They didn't have printing presses. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just make up facts. (laughs) (laughs) So the Black Death started in year 900, and the printing press was invented in year 1300.
0: And the yeah. Black Death ended in
1: 1948. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, fake history aside, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, this is now real history. This is my life. So a year and a half ago, when I was in Bath, where you're in Bath right now, right? Yeah, I am in Bath. Yeah, I was at that church, the Abbey or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found a book of excerpts from Revelations of Divine Love. And... I reread it for the podcast and noticed something really interesting. So I wanted to do something a little bit different than what we usually do on the podcast and just flex my English major skills a little okay, and okay. analyze one of those passages. I, knew I this hope it was doesn't gonna get come boring. Eventually. Marva, <laughs> you can do a dance on our Instagram if you want. <laughs> okay. You can use your skills too. Um, so this comes from chapter 59 of her long text. And I've adapted it, like, minimally, just because certain words don't carry the same meaning in today's vernacular. So there's just a couple words that are different. But I can post the, like, real one on our blog if you guys want to see. Um, so she's, she wrote, And thus Jesus is our true mother in kind of our first making, and he is our true mother in grace by taking of our kind made. All the fair working and all the sweet, kindly offices of dear, worthy motherhood is appropriated to the second person. For in him, we have this goodly will, whole and safe without end, both in kind and in grace and of his own proper goodness. So obviously, the really interesting thing here is that she's describing Jesus as our mother in both making and taking. As in, he is our mother for creating us and because he gave us grace when he took human form. But what I'm more interested in is her use of male pronouns in this chapter more generally.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So she uses male pronouns he and him to describe Christ as our mother, which is interesting because later in this chapter, she writes, this fair, lovely word, mother, it is so sweet and so kind in itself that it may not be verily said of none, me to none, but of him and to him. However, in some manuscripts, it's written from him and to her which has led scholars to believe that the second pronoun refers to the Virgin Mary. If she does indeed intend to refer to Mary here and uses the male pronoun, the pronoun kind of loses its maleness and becomes gender neutral. By using him as a gender neutral pronoun to refer to this maternal version of Christ and also for the figure of the Virgin Mary, as well as for the masculine presentation of God elsewhere in the chapter, Julian effectively removes gender from our perception of God whom many people nowadays do believe to be neither male nor female. So that's my little analysis, like look, close reading of She's that work. futuristic. Yes. But of course, for this and many other reasons, Julian knew she would face criticism as a female mystic and writer. And although there had been other prominent female mystics before her, julian is the first female writer in english that we know of and being the first of anything is hard and the first female writer at all in english
0: yeah but like, yeah of anything
1: yeah wow yeah in english <laughs> because... yeah but we
0: speak english and so there's a lot of things yeah. in english
1: yeah um but i mean like there's also like you know like In England, they spoke like the upper classes spoke French for a long time. Mm, mm -hmm. So um, there's like, what's her name? Uh, Marie de France, who's like, I think technically English, but I mean, her last name's de France. So I know. (laughs) Anyway, where could she possibly be (laughs) from? I thought she was English, (laughs) but she wrote things. I think, I don't know, maybe I'm confused. Okay. (laughs) Clearly I'm (laughs) confused. (laughs) The fact is that Julian, as far as we know, is the first female writer in English. Okay. Okay. Overall, Julian's presentation of Jesus is very heartfelt and passionate, the way perceptions of Jesus were trending in the preceding centuries. She focuses a lot on the suffering, sacrifice, and love of Christ, and the fact that he resides within humankind's souls. So we'll leave Julian here for a minute to discuss our other sister, Marjorie Kemp. Marjorie was born around 1373. That's the same year Julian received her visions. And her father was John Burnham, the five-time mayor of Kingsland, um, which was then known as Bishop's Lynn. And, and this what was is another- it now known as? Kingslyn. Oh, never heard of it. <laughs> Um, It's another thriving town in Norfolk, which is where Norwich Norwich is as well. Uh, I see. Yes. So they were neighbors, Mm -mm. but she was a baby. And although her family was wealthy, she was never educated and was illiterate, but learned about scripture through oral sermons. And although she couldn't read or write, she is the first author of an autobiography in English. Because she dictated her life to scribes who wrote the Book of Marjorie Kemp, and that's where like a lot of our information about her comes from.
0: I think that's um, brilliant. She's just I know delegating, getting other people to do exactly. the hard parts for her.
1: Yeah, she's so like, you monks aren't doing anything. You know how to write, <laughs> write about me because I'm fabulous and important.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> so Marjorie married a merchant in, and also he was a town official named John Kemp. Oh, they're and allowed to
0: get married?
1: She's not. What do you think she is? I don't know. I thought they were in, like, the <laughs> church. And... She's not. No. At this point, neither of them are formally. They're both lay people at this point. Lay people. Okay. Yes. Um. And Marjorie will always be a lay person. So. Lame. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, Marjorie, as I said, married John Kemp in 1393 at around 20 years old and after a series of sicknesses during her first pregnancy and the traumatic birth of her first child she went to confession because she felt she had had a brush with death and she just wanted to make sure everything's good with god mm-hmm. makes sense but the priest was super harsh and intense and basically the combination of these three things like her sickness and the, the birth and the confession led marjorie to have a severe mental breakdown She writes that she was wonderfully vexed and labored with spirits for half a year, eight weeks, and some odd days. So about, yeah, over eight months, she was suffering a lot. And during this time, she saw devils who commanded her to, quote, forsake her faith, her family, and her friends. She envisioned hellfire, and she felt the devils were encouraging her to die by suicide.
0: Oh, I was thinking maybe she had, like, postpartum depression, but then... But like seeing the devil's thing, it seems not yeah. typical.
1: So it's actually what I've read was that it's possibly the result of postpartum psychosis, which is a different uh-huh. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously at the time, no one would have diagnosed her with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she fortunately did recover from the breakdown, regardless of what was causing it through her first vision. So one day she was all alone. And Jesus appeared to her clad in purple silk and sitting on her bedside. And he told her, daughter, why have you forsaken me? And I forsook never you. After this, Jesus rose into the air. And once he was gone, Marjorie's sanity was restored. Or so she says. Yes. Um, Yes. So after this first vision, Marjorie continued to have visions of Jesus and Mary throughout her life. And more than just Jesus and Mary, like, also, like, a whole host of, like, saints and stuff. Um, and she began going to confession two to three times a day, fasting on Fridays, and wearing a hair shirt, which, have you ever heard of a hair shirt?
0: Martha? Yeah, the medieval people are obsessed.
1: I know. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> so, if people don't know what a hair shirt is, it's a garment that is made from, like, rough animal fur, usually goat hair. And it's worn against your skin, like, underneath your other shirt, um, so that the coarse hair would, like, rub against your skin and make you uncomfortable. And the discomfort serves, like, a double purpose. One is to serve as an act of penitence, penitence and a as a constant reminder of your faith to avoid temptation to sin. Um, so it's, like, I remember, like, our pastor, Pastor Greg, um, told us to put, like, a punny in your shoe. To like and every time you feel it, remember to pray. So it's like that, but way worse. <laughs> <laughs> but I never wear a penny in my shoe. But I still pray all the time because I'm a mystic. I'm not a mystic. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay I'm gonna stop. Okay. I'm gonna be blast. Um, anyways, although Marjorie was a wife, a mother of ultimately 13 children and a layperson she felt compelled to live a life of celibacy and this was not an easy pill for her husband to swallow and she writes about oh the struggle yeah often. yeah and did In their, their aud- first child survive i don't know about any the only thing i know about her children is that the oldest one was named john that's okay. literally the only thing okay um she did not really care about that <laughs> I guess because she has an autobiography but like there's no information about children (laughs) um yeah so um yeah obviously her husband was not super into that and she writes about this a lot in her autobiography and it's actually like really sad but we're gonna talk about it because it's okay to talk about sad things sometimes Mm -hmm. um so it's funny but it's like if you think about it it's like really sad um so she writes of one day when her husband asked her Marjorie, if there came a man with a sword and would smite my head off unless I should common naturally with you, and I think we all know what that means, what? <laughs> as I have done before, tell me the truth from your conscience, say you will not lie, whether you would suffer my head to be smote off or else suffer me to meddle with you again, as I did at one time.
0: Meddling. And she replied,
1: yeah, I love her response. Forsooth, I had rather see you be slain than we should turn again to our uncleanness.
0: Oh my gosh, that is yeah. so harsh.
1: I know. And he said, you are no good wife.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like that is kind of fair.
1: <laughs> yeah. But okay, also in this common in this conversation, I didn't write this down, but I remember it because it was mean She said, "Oh, like can we go to a bishop and make a formal vow of celibacy?" And he was like, "No, because then I could not quote use you without sinning," and so that's not nice. So yeah, this whole thing
0: is very
1: confusing. Yeah, I mean it's clearly like not a great relationship, but we're gonna we're gonna reach a solution more or less. So he's gonna get his head chopped off. (laughs) No. At the point of this conversation, it had been eight weeks since they last had commoned naturally. And even though they slept in the same bed together every night. And they had been celibate on and off for three years. But after this conversation, her husband asked three things of her. Number one, that they would sleep together. Two, that she would pay off his debts before she went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And three, that she would eat with him on Fridays. (laughs) Okay, number that's three so... is very Gilmore Girls. <laughs> um, that's so true. It's literally the plot of Gilmore Girls. Yeah. like the premise of it. Um, so they were like walking and like passed by a cross. And so Marjorie went to go pray with, quote, a great abundance of tears about her chastity and about eating on Fridays. After this, she came back to her husband with a counter offer. She said, Grant me that you shall not come in my bed and I grant you to requite you of your debts before I go to Jerusalem and make my body free to God so that you never challenge me by asking the debt of matrimony after this day while you live and I shall eat and drink on the Friday at your bidding. So he agreed to this. It's Mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, like she basically like sold her not, sold her not having sex to her husband, which is like a weird (laughs) transaction. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just, like, it makes me sad because she's literally, like, asking her body to be free, like, to do what she wants with it. And it's, like, she had to literally pay him to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, but he agreed to this, and they took an official vow of chastity before a bishop, which is what she wanted. Mm-hmm. So following this, they would spend a lot more time apart, which allowed Marjorie to travel more. And she was inspired by Bridget of Sweden, who was another mystic and saint. And to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and on this trip she stayed in Venice Assisi and Rome as well as obviously Jerusalem and she writes that when she first saw Jerusalem she fell off a donkey because she was so in shock of the vision in front of her and these two German guys like caught her and carried her the rest of the way okay <laughs> but yeah
0: So There are some things about this autobiography that I am like, did that happen?
1: (laughs) No, this is is what I was just about to say is that this is just the most classic Marjorie thing she could ever do because her type of mysticism is really like hallmarked by spiritual hysteria. And I don't use that word lightly because I think the word hysteria is like riddled with all these like meanings for women. But like, that's just what it is. So the crying I mentioned earlier isn't simply because her husband didn't respect her body or because she felt she couldn't fulfill God's commandments. Marjorie's mysticism fell into that category of, quote, effective emotional piety that we talked about earlier um, that scholars of medieval theology attribute to women. And during her pilgrimage, she wept and sobbed so plenteously as though she had seen our Lord with her own, with her bodily eye suffering his passion at the time. So she was like literally always doing this. She was everywhere from Jerusalem to Norfolk. She was crying up a storm. Mm -hmm. And I think this honestly makes sense because for most Christians at the time, even though the notion of personally knowing Jesus as a living God was now a thing, they hadn't actually seen Jesus. But Marjorie had seen Jesus with her own eyes and heard him talk to her and was in constant companionship with him, basically. And he had literally saved her from demonic possession and potential suicide. So her relationship with him was so deeply personal that I think, of course, like, when she thinks of betraying him by sleeping with her husband or visits the place of his crucifixion, she's going to freak out and, like, Mm -hmm. panic, you know? Yeah. Um, And so, of course, not everyone liked that. Like, we laugh about it now, but in her time, she was accused of fraud and heresy and criticized by later scholars as hysterical and crazy. And some modern day scholars say that the only reason she wasn't punished as a heretic is because she was wealthy and came from a relatively powerful background since both her father and husband were town officials. Mm-hmm. Um, so listen,
0: I'm mm-hmm. not saying that she wasn't telling the truth, but I feel like to say that she was a fraud or heretical Mm -hmm. like it's not necessarily
1: wrong (laughs) I'm not saying that I think like I said like those two definitions of you know of mysticism like she's definitely the latter of like it seems mm -hmm. like characterized by like delusion just because Mm -hmm. with Julian like I at least for one like I do believe that she really heard from God the same way I believe Joan of Arc heard from God and like her visions were, like, at one point in time, and then she just, like, basically lived off of those for the rest of her life. Whereas, like, Marjorie, she went from, like, basically one version of psychosis of seeing demons and hellfire, seeing Mm -hmm. Jesus and Mary. And it's, like, obviously a much more pleasant way to live, but it still led to this kind of, like, hysterical behavior of, like, crying in public all the time and, like, you know, like, falling off of donkeys
0: Mm -hmm. Um, and kind
1: of, like, wrath behavior you know like going to Jerusalem because she read a book about Mm -hmm. it um but she can read I would do that she shouldn't read but people would read things to her like sermons Mm -hmm. and like Bridget of Sweden's thing Mm -hmm. um so yeah so it's no wonder then with all the criticism and suspicion that Marjorie started to doubt herself and who did she go to for assurance Julian of Norwich What so yeah. So by 1394, around the time Marjorie was having her first visions of Christ, Julian was an anchoress at the Church of St. Julian in Norwich. And I say by 1394, because this is the earliest mention of her being an anchoress there, but she could have been there before that. Mm -hmm. And when becoming an anchoress, you basically have a funeral the way that nuns have like a wedding ceremony when they like get married to Christ, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is like the anchoresses dying to the world. So you have a funeral and then you enter a cell and never come out again. What? And yes,
0: you enter a cell and then never come out again. Yes. Physically.
1: Physically. Yeah. There's okay. a window. So I'll explain. I'll explain. So as an Angress, Julian lived a more or less completely isolated life. And there was a book called Ancrene Wisse, which was a guide for Anchoress's lives, written in Middle English, actually. And this is a book that Julian likely would have um, been able to read and likely did read, as it became popular during the 14th century, even though it was written a couple centuries before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because the 14th century is, is the 1300s. Good- <laughs> yes, is it's considered the golden age of the English recluse, as well as obviously. A really in time for mysticism as we discussed mm-hmm. so this book became popular because everyone was like i'm a mystic and also i'm a recluse um and the book calls for a life of isolation poverty and chastity and a, an anchoress only regular contact was with a maid and her cat they're supposed to have a cat. And Julian was not supposed to talk with her mate that often. You're supposed to be isolated, but she would, like, bring you food um, and water. I just... And... hmm. I cannot get on board. Yeah, I know. It sounds rough. Um, But so she would have a small window through which food, water, and sacraments could be passed. And basically, the only temptation that um, an anchorist would have is temptation for, like, gossip with passersby... And so she had to be, like, vigilant about, like, not allowing herself to talk to people when they walk What outside. about the
0: temptation to break out of that cell? I
1: mean, when you go in, it's sealed. So I don't know if you can leave. You think, like... You she... live in there, Marvel? <laughs> that's how it is. But, like, even if she changed her mind, she couldn't get out. She's dead to the world! I don't know, maybe she could, but that's not what you're supposed to do. And she didn't. She lived there forever that is so horrendous yeah um so anchoresses were even though it sounds like they were really isolated they were actually vital members of 14th century communities and they were committed to charity so an anchoress prayers were meant to protect people's souls in their town and she could also sew clothes and pass them through the window to be distributed to the poor Her other role and the only one of the only forms of contact permitted was giving guidance to those who sought it. So in return for her services to the community and doing all these things, she received money from people's wills. So Mm. in 1394, a man named Roger Reed left 12 shillings to Julian Anchorite in his will. And three other people left money to Julian in their wills. And these are most of the records we have of her existence outside of her own writings. But there is one other account of her that outshines the rest, and that is Marjorie Kemp's.
0: Hmm.
1: So in 1413 or 1414, when Julian was in her 70s, she received a visit from the notorious Marjorie Kemp. Marjorie wrote of her reason for going there, saying she was bidden by our Lord to go to Dame Julian for the anchoress was an expert in divine revelations and good counsel could give. So, in Julian, Marjorie found the reassurance she was searching for. Julian validated Marjorie's experience and advised her to trust it. She told her that any creature that has these tokens may steadfastly believe that the Holy Ghost dwells in his soul. And much more, when God visits a creature with tears of contrition, devotion, and passion, he may and ought to believe that the Holy Ghost is in his soul. She went on to say, set all of your trust in God and fear not the language of the world. Patience is necessary for you in that you shall keep your soul. And this phrase, if you guys read our incident post today, fear not the language of the world is actually a tattoo I have because when I learned about these women in college, I just became obsessed with them. And I love that idea of like, Marjorie going on a pilgrimage to the first woman writer in her language and getting this advice to fear not the language of the world and just really go out there and say what you want to say and like basically like haters gonna hate but you know write what you want to write and Mm -hmm. I really love that so Marjorie stayed for several days I'm assuming just in Norwich not in the actual cell because I don't think anyone's allowed in there aside from Julian Mm -hmm. And on reflecting on their time together, Marjorie wrote, "Much was the holy dalliance that the anchoress and this creature—that's what she she says this creature in her autobiography—to refer to herself—had mm-hmm. by communing in the Lord, in the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, the many days that they were together." So I'm super thankful that Marjorie visited Julian because, other than that, we don't ever get to see Julian through the eyes of another person. Mm-hmm. This pilgrimage also just teaches us a lot about basically about Julian. It shows how famous and yet accessible she was. And the fact that a wealthy woman who had traveled the world made a point of seeking out Julian for validation speaks super highly of her. It also shows how encouraging Julian was. And most importantly, this interaction demonstrates the power of women believing women. And Julian and Marjorie's mystical experiences were similar, and they both saw heard and felt christ and julian saw really tragic images of christ's suffering we didn't really talk about that but that's a lot of what she saw was like christ's pain and the passion of christ Mm -hmm. and marjorie it seems could truly feel his pain and passion although julian's visions only occurred once and affected her in a far less disturbing way scholars have accused both women of mental illness while others have celebrated their close relationship with god and I think we could probably spend hours debating whether or not it's possible that they received um, divine revelations from God, but we don't need to because Julian already settled the matter way back when, when she said, "What is truly important is not the fact of, of these experiences themselves, but the deepened love of God which results from them and insights communicated with them." So I just love that she said that. She's like, "It doesn't matter if you don't believe me, like." I love God more now, and that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so these women's spiritual experiences led Julian to become, as I said, the first known female writer in English and led Marjorie to become the first author of an autobiography in English ever by man or woman. Mm. And both women sacrificed a lot for their visions. Julian gave up her normal life and lived a life almost in complete isolation in a cell with a single window Mm -hmm. through which she could see glimpses of the outside world but not be of it and marjorie sacrificed her normal life as a wife and a mother and faced scorn and mockery from those around her and the time they spent together i think just must have been so restorative just to be with a like-minded woman who had the same experiences as you and beliefs as you and Their sisterhood, although brief, I think is a great example of sisters making one another feel validated, understood, and less alone. And yeah, that's the sisterhood of Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich. Wow,
0: okay. That was a very interesting story. I feel like, Mm -hmm. although probably I personally identify with Marjorie more. Like, I feel like Julian was, like, definitely the, like, more intense one. Because, like, I just don't think that Marjorie could have gone and lived in the cage. No, she couldn't anything.
1: have. She would have lost it.
0: Yeah. I mean, if she hasn't already lost it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then I also just want to mention when they each died so that we can kind of wrap up the story. Mm-hmm. Julian died in 1416 and Marjorie died in 1438. So they both lived decently long lives. So,
0: yeah. I also just feel like, um, I don't know, Marjorie, so I can't speak for her. But like Mm -hmm. her sacrifice of giving up her like marriage and motherhood. I don't really, I didn't really get the feeling that she was like all that into it to begin with. Yeah, no, definitely not. Like as a sacrifice, it just seems like, I don't know.
1: Well, comparing sacrifices here is not a competition. Yeah, but if we were, (laughs) I would say that I just feel like Julian,
0: like, I don't know, because the thing is, I feel like for Julian, like not being like a super wealthy person from like a wealthy background, Mm -hmm. like maybe going into like this church and like living there and having like a stable place to live and like where you're safe and mm-hmm. have all, everything provided for you like maybe like a
1: good thing um, mm-hmm. but- it's also like I don't know what it was like in Norwich but in general to become an anchorite or anchores um, it's like a selection process like you can't just like go mm-hmm. like she was like chosen so it's like not just super easy mm-hmm. um, so yeah it's pretty good but Yeah I mean like I think they're I just really love their relationship and I think like even though they were so different and like the nature of their visions was so different I really like that Julian just like accepted Marjorie as she was right away Mm -hmm. and didn't like deny that because I'm sure like she knew what it felt like to be denied and to be doubted yeah Um, and she could have easily like she's in like yeah like you said like the safety of herself like she could have just been mean um, but instead she like was really encouraging and yeah but
0: do you not think that like because julian when she had her visions it was when she was like really sick right Mm -hmm. and her visions are like very painful and that kind of stuff like Mm -hmm. that that could be related because then also like marjorie when she first had her visions like also like they were like very dark when she was going through like a very dark time and then Mm -hmm. um Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like...
1: Well, I mean, Julian's visions, they were they were, like, of the passion of the Christ, but they were a really positive message. Like I said, Mm -hmm. mysticism was, like, a really positive thing and it was a reaction to all the cynical theology that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. So, like, her whole thing is, like, God is love. Like, I knew this, like, God is love. Like, you will not be overcome. It's, like, a very positive message if you actually, like, read her writing. It's, like, Jesus has this nurturing, mothering Kind of figure, so it's not, it's not like dark in the way that um, Marjorie's original um, demonic visions were at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like, yeah, Marjorie like cried a lot, but it wasn't like always like sad crying. It's like, just like a passionate crying mm-hmm. and like a, like an intense crying. It's not their their spirituality was not like a dark spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and a lot of people still like I mean the fact that Julian of Norwich's book was being sold in a church today that's like a perfect um demonstration that a lot of people still do recognize Julian as like a true mystic and like it a- had divine revelations mm-hmm. um she was never like canonized she's not a saint or anything but yeah whereas Marjorie Kemp like she was very highly doubted in her own time and still is mm-hmm.
0: interesting indeed I, Yeah, I never really heard of this like mysticism before. So
1: mm-hmm. like it's like well, you knew who Julian like... of Norwich was, was it? didn't you?
0: No, I mean I
1: heard her name before. Okay, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, like theologically and politically and socially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Any anything else?
0: Um no I just feel like I need to like think so much about everything that you just said.
1: I think the my main point is that you don't have to think about it. You don't have to decide if it's true or not. It doesn't really matter that it's true. What matters is how they how it affected them because mm-hmm. it was true to them. Yeah. You know.
0: And it literally like, defined their whole lives.
1: Yeah. Um like one of my favorite writers and artists as you know is William Blake and he had visions his whole life and that led to him creating an entire like world like an entire mythology and like world in his art and in his writing mm-hmm. and it's like whether or not like those things were like true or like whether or not he was like like having like had like schizophrenia or something it doesn't really matter like Mm-hmm. he was like creating worlds and then like, creating like some of the most beautiful art that i think is of the 18th century so yeah, yeah.
0: like because it's based off of his experience and so yeah it's real what, for him yeah and, w- nobody else would have experienced it anyway. Is like whether mm-hmm. it happened or not
1: yeah and i think like what makes people question this more like at least put like more onus on it is that it's like based on like an actual religion that millions of people believe in Mm -hmm. so it like has more weight whereas like william blake was just over here like having like creating religions basically Mm -hmm. um so it's like doesn't really matter um but yeah interesting cool well
0: (laughs) um i'm looking forward to seeing what you do for the blog and the instagram
1: post Mm -hmm. this week yeah we'll definitely have more to come um and yeah I think I'll probably on Instagram talk about mysticism and some other cultures just because it's such a universal thing
0: so just before we go uh we a reminder we have our is it a competition is it giveaway okay (laughs) Not Every, everything is a competition. A competition. To me. <laughs> um, we have our giveaway going on right now, uh, for your chance to win a copy of The Harlot's Handbook Harris's
1: List, which is a book
0: by Hallie Rubenhold.
1: Yes, this is a book we've mentioned on a few different episodes, and we just think it would be great for our listeners to have a listen and or or not have a read. Listen, have a read. <laughs> um, and Harris's List of Covent Garden Ladies was a bestseller in the 18th century, and it sold more than a quarter of a million copies in its time. And it was just an essential book for every gentleman of pleasure in London. And yeah, we think it would be a really interesting. Obviously, I just said that. It would be an interesting (laughs) read. And the way you can participate in this giveaway is to... Rate and review us on wherever you listen to podcasts, and then post a screenshot of that review on social media, and tag at Untold, and yep. then we'll choose a winner.
0: Yep, we'll choose a winner from. So it is a competition. <laughs> yeah, see, I know what I'm talking about. Um, oh. We'll choose a winner uh, using, you know, either your Twitter, Instagram oh. handle, or your Facebook name, um, and we will announce it on one of our episodes and then you will just have to get in contact with us and we will send that book your way um, Yeah, cool yeah. so that's all
1: for me yes we'll have some announcements in a second and we'll just sign off right now <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> this is, is History. History. <laughs>
0: I think that was good. That it wasn't was good. It was good. You just need to sound happier.
1: I sounded way happier than you.
0: No, you started off. You was you're like, this, this, this is sistery. This is
1: sister-y. <laughs> yeah, I did. We want to remind you that we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us on all of those, just sistery untold. And that's a great way to connect with us and stay up to date with what's going on on the show and we'd love to hear from you in our dms or messages if you have any episode ideas or questions so definitely check those out we also have a patreon and we would love your support if you search for us on patreon at sister untold or go to our website and click join the sisterhood there's a lot of information about it there but essentially By supporting us on Patreon at any tier, you get access to The Sisterhood, which is a discussion forum on our website where we talk about the episodes, and you also support us to do things like buy new microphones so we don't get more complaints about our sound quality, which I seem to get very often, (laughs) and you also can just help us keep doing this podcast as not just a labor of love, but also a labor of a
0: little bit of money. So, yeah. Yeah, and another way you can definitely help support us if you like the show is by leaving a review uh, wherever you listen to podcasts or on apple Podcasts is one of the best places to leave a review um because that just helps people find out about our show and us reach new listeners as well as you spreading the word through word of mouth telling your friends family um sharing our posts on instagram sharing our episodes with anyone who you think would like to listen uh but so please find us on apple Podcasts if you have an iphone and leave us a five-star review and let us know what you think about the show